2: Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out. C-SPAN now resumes live coverage of the Judiciary Committee hearing on the nominations of Judge Neil Gorsuch. Senator Wolf from Arkansas has the floor.
1: Well, now, Judge Gorsuch, we are pleased as a dog with two tails to have y'all before us today. I will try to make my questions brief. Thank you, Senator. My first question is... Have you seen La La Land? Mrs. Wolfe and I saw it recently, and we did not care for it much at all.
2: Uh, my wife sort of dragged me to see it. I liked it better than I expected to.
1: Well, how about that fella, little goosey boy?
2: Ryan Gosling, sir?
1: He looks at his dang feet while he's dancing. Uh,
2: I think the idea was that ordinary people can burst into...
1: Ordinary? What the heck is ordinary about that girl with eyes like satellite dishes. She looks like one of them spooky dolls you win at a carnival for throwing rings around a bottle.
2: Emma Stone, yes. Uh, Senator, I feel to see how this connects to- I'll
1: tell you why, son. Because La La Lamb could get the Oscar for Best Picture. It ain't no Braveheart. It sure as hell ain't no Silence of the Lambs. It ain't no Gladiator. What kind of judge are you if you don't know that? Well, I'm not... Who's better? Lady Gaga or Mumford and Sons?
2: Do you mean... Trick
1: question, son. They both stink like a cat house at low tide. Okay, PS4 or Xbox One?
2: I'm not sure I... Sony
1: PS4 has more exclusive games. Blake Shelton or Adam Levine? Uh... Sonny, I think you should go learn how to judge things. Come back when you know something. Meanwhile, we got a show right here. Yes, we do. It's some kind of show. So set yourselves down. And now he does not believe in confirming any justice who can't sing the Fresh Prince theme song, Colin McEnroe. Uh,
2: this, this is a story about how my life turned upside down. Actually, I can't sing it. I could not actually be confirmed as a Supreme Court justice because I would fail my own litmus test. All right, so you know usually, on a day like this we 're talking about the Super Bowl or the commercials, or you know the things that ordinary people used to talk about in the before times, the shiny times. But now it just doesn't really seem, it just seems everything seems kind of trivial compared to some of the rather meaty and weighty conversations that we're having. So we are going to talk about uh, the relationship between the president and the courts, uh, which changes every 20 minutes or so, uh, with Dahlia Lithwick, who writes about the courts and the law for Slate. A little bit later, we're also going to talk to uh, Yasha Munk, who's a lecturer at Harvard uh, and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund and who I've been uh, reading in Slate and listening to on uh, jacob weisberg's excellent trump cast and who has very interesting things to say uh maybe uh, even at a slightly more global level about the state of democracy and the future of democracy and you know spoiler none of it's good but you know we could pull this whole thing out all right so dahlia lithwick who's appeared with us many times before and uh, hosts the podcast amicus is it amicus or amicus i always forget it,
0: uh it's so complicated we pronounce it amicus Yeah,
2: that's what I thought. a lot
0: of uh, fancy people pronounce it Amicus, and then Justice Breyer surprised me uh, by calling, pr- pronouncing it Amicus. So <laughs> take your pick.
2: He's on the Supreme Court. He doesn't even know how to say that correctly. All right. So, or maybe the maybe what he says goes. Well, you know, I was just laughing with you before we went on the air. You know, as people begin to weigh in on some of these questions about presidential overreach or an imbalance in the balance of powers, it's kind of interesting whose voices get heard. So today on the op-ed page of the New York Times, John Yu, who, like in the Bush administration, was the freaking prince of darkness and the angel of death. And, you know, when the towers of civilization seemed to be... Falling around us, and all these constitutional checks on presidential power were giving way to torture and holding people without charges in Guantanamo and FISA warrants up the Kazuti. John Yu is the legal architect of all the opinions, the in house opinions supporting that idea. He was the guy that Bush and Cheney went to when they wanted to do something that presidents <laughs> typically weren't allowed to do. He's got an op ed in the New York Times today saying, No. I think this guy's going a little too far, so Dahlia, when John you parts company with you, what does that mean?
0: Well, I mean, a couple things first of all, it's true. Uh, he was the guy who redefined torture as like major organ failure um, and and it's quite amazing uh, that he is parting company, but I, I, Colin, what's interesting is he kind of goes through bump 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 you know Trump's various actions and he he doesn't really take issue with the uses of executive power. He he more has a problem with tone. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he's like, oh, the Muslim ban, that's okay, probably shouldn't have called it a Muslim ban. You know, like, it's, it's interesting, because he seems to think, if I were writing these memos, I could make them okay. His problem is that he doesn't like Trump's kind of roughshod dismissal of the judiciary. And he doesn't like Trump's language. He doesn't like the fact that in Trump's you know, when he took his oath of office, he forgot to talk about the Constitution. But it is interesting. It doesn't feel as though, in a deep way, uh, he thinks these are extra-legal, extra-constitutional executive actions. He just wishes Trump would talk more nicely about it.
2: Right. So when it, when it gets to the immigration ban, um, he has an interesting set of reasonings that I'm since I am not Dahlia Lithwick, and I don't really know how all these things work that well, I don't know when this would come up. For He sort of really harps on the backstory, almost kind of the executive version of legislative intent, right? He says, well, if you look at the way the thing's written, you know, it's not so bad. But then you got Rudy Giuliani, you know, who basically said Trump came to him and said, no, I really want to make this a religious ban, just like tart it up somehow. So it doesn't look like that. And we also do know, I can't remember whether you mentioned it or not, that, you know, in interviews during the campaigns, you know, Trump really did say, oh, no, I really want to do a religious ban. I want to ban Muslims. You know, um, I, I, in terms of the kinds of court actions that are working their way a, a, across this subject right now, I'm not sure where whether any of that backstory, that intent, is going to come up, unless it can be really be read at the letter of the executive order.
0: It, it actually will come up, and I think it will come up largely because, you know, what we're seeing now, we haven't really seen litigation on the merits, right? Mm -hmm. Is this constitutional or not? We've seen a bunch of, you know, injunctions, a bunch of judges saying, we're not even going to get to the constitutional question. We're just going to say, for right now, these plaintiffs are being harmed and they have you know, a decent chance of succeeding at the merits. It's a pretty low baseline for, you know, enjoining this executive order. But when you start to talk about the constitutional merits and that big lawsuit suit in Washington state, the one that resulted in the huge nationwide injunction on Friday, they're already uh, in the court pleading, starting to talk about the First Amendment, the religious ban. So it, it, it will become material. It is A distinction, I think a legal distinction, both sort of statutorily and constitutionally, whether the president, we we all can agree that the president actually has pretty wide latitude uh, to set immigration policy and to decide who can be excluded. But once you start doing it on the basis of religion as opposed to some other classifications, Huge constitutional flag, and so even though this seems like, wait, what we're, we're, you know, citing like Mike Huckabee and Rudy Giuliani, it it does become actually probative in a court if this is just an end run around the president's
2: promise that this would be based on religion right so um and and the dagger that he kind of left on the table with his fingerprints on it i think is is within the executive order where in fact it says that that some kind of fast tracking or favoritism will be given to uh, persecuted religious minorities if you can make the case that you're a religious minority facing persecution first of all that you're facing religious persecution and second of all that you're a religious minority in that country then you get extra points you, you get to go to the head of the line whatever you you get some kind of assistance or priority there. And, and since they're all Muslim-majority countries, it, it kind of does look not only like it's a ban of Muslims, but as though there might be favoritism of Christians written in there. That, he also has said that in interviews, that he would, you know, like to favor Christians. And, and that gets into, into all kinds of establishment clause issues, I would think
0: does, and you're right. He did say it in addition to sort of the, 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 the end run, doing it kind of by pretext in the actual order. He he went out and said it, uh, we're going to give uh, preference to Christian minorities. So we, we know uh, what that is and what he's doing, and like I say, that's you know you're starting to see that being argued when folks say this is clearly in violation of the first amendment you know the other i think big constitutional claim is that this violates uh the fifth amendment equal protection clause and that's you know what we're starting to see come up too i, I think in fairness and i, I it-, it it pains me to say in fairness to john you but i'm going to say it in fairness this is actually like a a, a close question and in fairness we did hear a lot of these arguments about the president's sort of very broad power to set immigration authority only last year, right, when Mm -hmm. DACA came up before the Supreme Court. So It's important to to say, I think some version of this policy absolutely could have been crafted constitutionally, and even absent all the sort of chatter that is making it harder for the president because he keeps asserting that it's a Muslim ban, but it's not a Muslim ban, I think there's no doubt this could have been done in a way that could have effectuated what they wanted to effectuate. This really not only goes to the fact that sort of as construed it looks unconstitutional, but also oh, my God, had there been a little bit of deliberation and interagency cooperation and, say, some decent legal research, this could have been done with such a tremendous amount less of drama. And that's really the question is why. And I do think that goes to John Yu's point. Why do it badly when it with a little bit of interagency coordination and some legal research? You could have done it reasonably well.
2: I just want to say, If you and I are ever in some black site and we're both in stress positions, I'm going to point out to them. She said, in fairness to John Yu one time, because, you know, that could get you— a little bit of leniency. I'm anyway, going a lot
0: better tonight. Yeah. Thank you,
2: Colin. <laughs> I've got your back on this one, Dalia. <laughs> so um, the the next part of this. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the case in Washington, uh, and, and then uh, actually the the challenge, uh, the appeals challenge that, that followed it, um, apparently unsuccessfully. Um, and what you've got now is. The president, not surprisingly, given his temperament, really kind of attacking uh, the judge behind this, calling him a so-called judge. And, and if John Yoo is a surprise uh, ally, um, an even bigger surprise uh, might be Mitch, Mitch McConnell. This is Mitch McConnell on State of the Union on CNN this weekend. The president uh, has not had the same cautious reply. Uh, As you just offered uh, the American people, sir, as you know, on Saturday, he repeatedly attacked the federal judge who issued the ruling. He called Judge Robart, a George W. Bush appointee, a, quote, so-called judge. And he tweeted, quote, what is our country coming to when a judge can halt a Homeland Security travel ban and anyone even with bad intentions can come into the U.S.? You consider yourself a constitutional conservative. Do you have any concerns about the comments the president is making about the judiciary? Yeah, I think it's best not to single out judges for criticism. We all get disappointed from time to time uh, at the outcome in courts, on things that we uh, care about. But I think it's best to avoid uh, criticizing judges individually. It's much better just to rig the process later so the president can't appoint the judge he wants in the first place. Um, But, you know, I mean, Dahlia, this... The rubber is kind of at the road here. I mean, and it's meeting the road kind of early. One of the questions we might have had about President Trump's temperament and his appreciation for the notion of separation of powers would be, what would happen when he was gainsaid by uh, a judge? Would he respect the rule of law, the structure of things go the the route that Mitch McConnell outlined there? And we don't really have that question quite yet. We have the the inkling of that question right now, right? What happens when he goes, well, screw it. I'm still going to do what I want.
0: Well, I mean, I think that's where people start, you know, hissing those scary words, constitutional crisis. And, you know, I think there was, we did a bunch of reporting on this last week, even at Slate. I mean, is this going to end up with a bunch of federal marshals in a standoff with, you know, CBP at airports where, you know, we have two branches of the federal government Uh, you know, both saying they are uh, trying to carry out the rule of law. And I think even if it doesn't rise to that, and clearly, you know, the government, the administration decided absolutely to stand down after uh, this order came out on Friday night. And so we're not going to see it, I think, play out in airports. But I think there is this really deep question about Trump. And this didn't start just this week, right? These weren't just these tweets. This started during the campaign where he went after uh, Judge Curiel in his Trump University lawsuit and suggested that because he was of uh, uh, Hispanic origin, he couldn't possibly be fair in any uh, case involving Trump. And it's really, I think, threaded through, again, not just the tweets, not just the you know, his weird, weird inauguration speech where he forgot to mention the Constitution or the law or rule of law or the courts at all. But I think this sort of overarching theme in Trump's posture towards courts and law throughout his career has been, the law exists to do what I say, and when it doesn't do what I say, those are bad, corrupt judges and courts. And in a way, it's not surprising. I think when one comes out of an entirely sort of business environment and not a constitutional environment. It's easy to say that. But if you are, you know, if you think about even Bill Clinton or Obama, when courts ruled against them, there's a certain amount of understanding that one defers to the courts in a constitutional democracy. Trump has none of that. And that's, I think, where this language of constitutional crisis starts to bubble up, this idea that he really does not believe that he is subject to the rule of law the way you and I think about that notion.
2: Right. We have to take a break right now. I, I would have, we We're going to play the clip, but we're not going to, I think. But I was going to observe that the closest I can remember coming to this, in a way, is President Obama's spanking uh, of the Supreme Court at the State of the Union address. Uh, when he was really mad about Citizens United. But that's still a little bit different. Anyway, we got to take a quick break. We have more of Dahlia uh, and Amicus. I'm going to start saying amicus the way Dahlia says it. One, two,
3: three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Supreme Court judges.
2: With all due deference to separation of powers, last week the Supreme Court reversed a century of law that I believe will open the floodgates for special interests, including foreign corporations to spend without limit in our elections. I don't think American elections should be bankrolled by America's most powerful interests, or worse, by foreign entities. They should be decided by the American people. And I'd urge Democrats and Republicans to pass a bill that helps correct some of these problems. That's the thing I was talking about. Um, uh, we're talking to Dahlia Lithwick, uh, writes about the courts and law for Slate, and hosts the podcast, Emma Cuss. I, I want to be like Stephen Breyer and develop my own highly idiosyncratic <laughs> pronunciation of the word that only I use. But anyway, it's, it's, by the way, it's a great podcast, and it couldn't be more timely and relevant right now. Ratings are going to go through the ceiling. Um, so Dahlia, I mean, I don't want to dwell too much on that, but, you know, he did mention Supreme. Uh, he did mention separation of powers. He gave him a good spanking, but he didn't say they weren't real judges.
0: Uh, he didn't. That and he also – I think it's really important to understand that and, – and forgive me for the partisanship, but he also didn't call out, you know, Republican judges do this and judges appointed by Democrats do this. Mm-hmm. And Trump's kind of going after – no, you're right. This was a George W. Bush appointee, so it makes no sense. But if you think about during the campaign, he went after John Roberts, right, by name, mm-hmm. as somebody who was squishy on the Affordable Care Act. He went after Anthony Kennedy, another uh, Republican appointee. So I think that there is this long programmatic attempt for to talk about the courts as Republican judges are real judges, Democrats are bad judges. We saw Trump really carry that through the campaign. And if you think about it, I think you know, A, it's completely destabilizing, right, Colin? I mean, to suggest that, you know, some judges are real judges and some aren't. But that was absolutely what underpinned the opposition to Merrick Garland, too, was that, any judge appointed by Obama wasn't going to be a real judge. And then when Trump gets up and it's like, well, you know, now I'm a real president and I'm going to appoint a real judge, ladies and gentlemen, Neil Gorsuch. And you hear, you know, Mitch McConnell be like, now we can have a real confirmation hearing on a real judge. So I think it's not just sort of the picking and choosing, you know, who gets to be a real judge, but also this idea that the only legitimate judges in America anymore are the ones who agree with you. And I think that is really deeply frightening.
2: We only have just a few minutes to talk about Gorsuch. But I mean, Dahlia, come with me to a a different world where where Merrick Garland uh, had been confirmed. Gorsuch is the second uh, appointment of this presidency. Trump isn't the president. Jeb exclamation point. Bush is the president and he appoints Neil Gorsuch. At that point, is there an intellectually coherent argument against the confirmation of Gorsuch? Is there something fundamentally wrong with him that isn't completely circumstantial?
0: think that what the only thing that's kind of wrong with Gorsuch is that he's not Merrick Garland. In other words, I think if you're going to filter this through the analysis that blocked Garland, uh, then Gorsuch doesn't pass either, right, which is that no president gets to appoint anyone ever. Uh, But I think that Gorsuch is, you know, there's some debate, I think, inside the Academy about whether he's Slightly outside of the mainstream or slightly inside of the mainstream. We certainly know he is very much uh, modeling himself on Antonin Scalia. We know that he is very, very much you know, a hard, conservative, sort of traditional Federalist Society pick. What he's not, and this is important, is a nut job. And I think a lot of folks were afraid that Trump was going to put someone... You know, very much in the model of some of his cabinet appointments who are just, you know, hate the. The the institution that they're meant to represent Gorsuch isn't that. In that sense, he's mainstream because he's a good judge and he believes in the judiciary. Uh, But yeah, he's extremely conservative.
2: One of the things that I think my attention is drawn to now is uh, his enthusiastic support uh, of Hobby Lobby in in that case, because I mean, one of the questions it goes back to what we were talking about before: if in fact this executive order on immigration does privilege Christians in some way, you know, I mean. then I have. I, I want to know more about how Gorsuch processes that question.
0: I don't think there's any doubt at all if you look at his work, and not just I would say uh, his judicial work, but actually, you know, he's got a, a pretty seminal and thoughtful book on, you know. Uh, end-of-life mm-hmm. and physician-assisted suicide issues, that this is a person whose worldview is very, very much animated by deep, deep solicitude for faith. Um, if you look, actually, at some of his judicial work, that doesn't only apply to Christians. He has incredible solicitude for um, for petitioners of other faiths. But there is no, no doubt that uh, this is a person who really, I think, in a deep way, thinks that people of faith deserve absolutely extra special protection from the courts. And, uh, you know, that may or may not map onto how he looks at this executive order. You know, one of the things we know very little about uh, on Judge Gorsuch is how he's going to really think about these John Yu questions of the limits on executive power. He hasn't written all that much directly on point.
2: All right. Uh, we have to pause there or stop there. Uh, thanks so much to Dahlia Lithwick. Uh, this was just the appetizer, course, of Dahlia Lithwick. If you want the delicious entree, you must subscribe to Amica, so you can pronounce it any way you want, actually. But uh, you have to subscribe to it on your podcast feed. It's terrific. Oh, I think we're hearing the Schuyler sisters from last night at the Super Bowl singing America the Beautiful for Sisterhood.
3: God shed his great
1: shed his grace and crown thy good with brother and sisterhood from sea to shine. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Allie Oshinsky. The part of Bill Curry was played by Potter Stewart. You can hear all of our shows at WNPR.org/slash Colin. And a reminder: starting this week, all of our reruns will be at 9 p.m. On tomorrow's show, how do you pin down the concept of beauty? And now, back to Colin.
2: All right, we are indeed back. Um, one of the indispensable tools for getting through the current era, as far as I'm concerned, is the is another Slate podcast. Actually, this sounds like some kind of infomercial for Slate pod, Slate podcast today, but the Slate podcast, Trumpcast, uh, ho- hosted by Jacob Weisberg. And so I was out walking the dog on um, Sunday, listening to it on my earbuds, and our, our next guest was on, and it was such an amazing conversation that I went home and set it up in the kitchen and replayed the whole thing. Uh, and so... So then I said to Betsy Kaplan, all right, we have to have this guy on. So this guy is Yasha Munk, a lecturer at Harvard, a fellow at the German Marshall Fund, uh, writes the Good Fight column at Slate. Also the author of two books, including The Age of Responsibility, Luck, Choice, and the Welfare State, which will be published this summer. Um, Welcome to our conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. So um, I'll begin with a little bit of breaking news. You may not even know this, or maybe you do. The Speaker of the House of Commons uh, in Parliament in Britain, uh, John Burkow, I think his name is, has said that uh, he would oppose letting Donald Trump speak to Parliament uh, when he visits the United Kingdom later this year, Um, and he cites really some of the kinds of points that that we tend to discuss here, some of the kinds of things that, that you've been discussing, almost as if this were some kind of contagion, almost as if, and I think it's an argument that you're making, that this isn't a battle that's confined to the United States. It's a fundamental question about how constitutional democracies and related forms are going to function.
3: Yeah, you know, that's that's exactly right. Um, and it's an important thing to realize. The story in the United States is so striking. Um, and Donald Trump is such a striking uh, politician, such sort of a striking political figure, that it's very easy for us to sort of get bogged down in the particular things that are going on here. And it's important not to because uh, we have to understand the deeper causes of what has been driving this rise of far-right populism, which has started not just since the financial crisis in 2008, but but long before, and not just in the United States, but in countries like France, in countries like Sweden, in countries like Hungary and Poland and Turkey and India. Um, so there's a remarkably similar energy going on. And I think the way to understand this is really as uh, what I call the illiberal international. It's a set of populists who say, I alone speak for the people, Anybody who opposes me is a kind of traitor, doesn't really belong to the people. And any institution that stands in my way um, should have a power taken away from it. Um, And so that threatens a real radical transformation of a kind of political system in which we've grown up.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the things that this points up is that a lot of the institutions of democracy, uh, they may be backed by some implicit measure of force, but a lot of them aren't backed by any particular force. Their, Their constancy is... A product of itself. I mean, in, in other words, they've always been constant. They are latently real and true in a democracy until somebody suddenly says, well, what if I just knocked over all of those things? What would you really do about this? You know, St- uh, Stalin famously was uh, uh, chided by the pope, uh, I think, at one point, And when the, his advisors asked him about this, Stalin's answer was, how many divisions has the pope? Um, yeah. and, and so how many battalions has the Supreme Court? And the answer is none.
3: That's exactly the point. So the United States is, you know, the most stable uh, democracy, democratic republic in in, 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 in modern history. Um, it goes back a very long way, and we've told ourselves a story about why it has been so stable. Um, and we learned that story in, in school, right? There's checks and balances uh, and all of those things. Um, but as a matter of fact, during our history, we've never been in a situation in which somebody actually tries to take all of the power in their own hands in the White House. We've never been in a situation in which people have been as little informed about the political system and as angry at the political system as they are now. And so we don't really know how well these checks and balances work under stress. Um, We know that when people have a deep commitment to democratic norms and they don't elect politicians who go around undermining democratic norms, then the checks and balances work pretty well. But so what happens in a situation where a president says, you know what, I disagree with this so-called judge in Oregon or somewhere else, and I'm going to tell the federal bureaucracy to just enforce my executive order, even though it has been overruled by the courts? We've never been there. We don't know how exactly that drama goes down. And that's one of the things I'm really worried about for the next four years.
2: Right. And it gets down to almost a form of game theory. Um, You know, if uh, if you're a respecter of the institutions of democracy and and all of its uh, implied and explicit covenants, and you're dealing with somebody who isn't, it can be much more rewarding to the person who decides to break the rules. And let's take a really specific example that's pre-Trump. So uh, we were just talking to Dahlia about this. So at a certain point, Mitch McConnell and the Republican minority decide that they're not going to let Barack Obama have uh, his Supreme Court uh, appointment, not even a hearing for the Supreme Court appointment. It's March of his final year. It's not like he's getting out of office the next day. They kind of make up a new rule, a new precept, and it, it obviously favors them. And as a strategy, it's worked out superlatively. Um, they've made up a rule or broken up a broken an, own, uh, an old rule. And, and so then the question at the level of game theory, Yasha, becomes, well, is it there f- then in the in the interests of the other side, even if intellectually it's committed to the pres- preservation of institutions and covenants to start doing the same thing? Like let's say the Democrats took back the Senate in 2018. You know, should they say the same thing? You know what? You're not getting any hearings on your Supreme Court nominations unless you give us David Cedar 2.0 or something that we really like a lot. Otherwise, screw it. You know, you, we're just not doing this anymore. And suddenly, you have a system that's that's in default because neither side can afford to believe in it anymore.
3: That, that's exactly the danger, right? So, um, you know, I think there is a sort of game theory question here. There is a question about, you know, if you're a Democrat in the Senate right now. Um, and the Republicans have nominated somebody from whom you have real disagreements, but who's not outside the judicial mainstream, um, and ordinarily would say, well, look, I mean, I might vote against him, I might grill him in a confirmation hearing, um, but I shouldn't filibuster it, because we need to fill Supreme Court seats, and it's reasonable for the president to get to nominate them. But, but, but it's very clear to you that the other side is not willing to afford you the same courtesy, and they've basically stolen the seats. So what do you do? And, and I think that's a deep problem, but... But there's also this sort of larger question, which is that once each side of a political spectrum starts to treat basic questions of how to proceed politically as a matter of game theory, we are already in deep, deep trouble. Um, The Constitution and, and, and our sort of political practices can't spell out every single thing about how to work the system. If you want to destroy the system, it's relatively easy to do that. And so if we have lots of politicians who are willing to just completely push the partisan interests, even if it destroys the system, then the system will be destroyed very soon. And that's, you know, stepping away from this particular fight, that is the thing that really worries me about this moment. But we're now in a situation in which people don't say, you know what, I deeply disagree with the other side, but we both have a shared commitment to the basic procedure by which we make political decisions, and that's elections and the rights that office holders have and certain procedures about how to proceed in Congress and so on. And so I know that if I lose this fight, it's okay, because two or four or six years from now I can come back and I can win the elections, and that's the way that we resolve political disputes. Now I think we're in a moment of such deep partisanship. And such willingness, especially on behalf of Republicans and especially Donald Trump, but also some mainstream Republicans, to abrogate more power for themselves, to violate those norms, um, that this joint commitment, this idea of loyal opposition is becoming more and more difficult. And the big Supreme Court fight is one example of that. I was also very shocked by what happened in North Carolina, um, where it wasn't sort of particularly Trump supporters. It was really— pretty standard run-of-the-mill Republicans who said, you know what, the people voted for a governor we didn't like. So after the election, while we still have control of the state legislature, let's completely change his job description and take a whole bunch of his powers away. That, to me, was a really radical attack on the most basic ideas of how democracy works.
2: And, and, you know, again, I mean, as somebody who leans and votes Democrat, I— I, I, this may be a cultural reference point that's lost on you, but for people, other people listening, uh, you know, if you're always Charlie Brown and the Republicans are always Lucy and that means that she's always right. pulling the football OK, you know that one where she's always pulling the football uh, away when you run up to kick it. You're spending a lot of your time flat on your back. And, and it really does raise questions right. about whether Democrats should hew to their principles or play this new game.
3: I've been in this country 10 years now, so there's still a lot of uh, cultural references I'm lacking. and I didn't grow up with Charlie Brown, but I've yeah. seen enough of it at this point to understand the reference. Um, even though as a good European, I, I, uh, I claim the word football for soccer right. um, and insist that uh, what, what, what you guys played yesterday should be called hand ag rather than football. But, um, <laughs> but No, look, I, I agree. This is a problem. That, that, that One of the ways in which democracies are more fragile than a lot of people recognize, is that you need real commitment to these norms on both sides. Um, And so the best thing we can do for democracy is to convince people um, who disagree with Democrats strongly for all kinds of reasons that that that's fine and they can push the policies, but, but they cannot push them at the expense of those basic norms. Now, once the other side starts playing hardball, how do you respond? I don't have a good answer to that, because I think that you're doomed if you do, and you're doomed if you don't. If you keep just letting them get away with it, then that just increases the incentive for the other side to just keep breaking those norms, and the norms will erode over time. But if you start playing constitutional hardcore in the same way, abusing the way that things are supposed to work in the same way, then you suddenly have nobody who is committed to these democratic norms and trying to make them survive. And so the only hope we have is to make people come to reason and give them an appreciation of how important these norms are, but they're more important than having an extra judge sitting on the Supreme Court who's mm-hmm. favorable to your kind of political outlook. Um and I think personally that if we don't manage to convince most Americans and most office holders of the urgency of this, then it doesn't matter what Democrats do. Whether we end up blocking or we end up going along with all of it. We headed into very dangerous territory.
2: Um, Yasha, w- one thing that I've been intrigued by in a very unpleasant way um, has been the role of Steve Bannon, w- Bannon within this new administration, and specifically the appointment of Steve Bannon to the National Security Council, which seems to be fairly unprecedented. But not just that, but the demotion of the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of the Chief of Staff uh, and the director of national intelligence. And here, this seems a little bit like less like tinkering with the structure with a screwdriver, removing a bolt here and a screw there, and substituting kind of a cult of personality for the actual structure itself it's like I've got this little group of people that I trust and I, who are loyal to me and irrespective of what their office is or whether they've been confirmed by the Senate they're going to take the places of a lot of uh, of people whose offices are familiar to Americans and whose roles are familiar to Americans
3: it, it's very worrying um so 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 the the, the core of this sort of populist appeal, um that as we said in the beginning of our conversation is happening not just in the United States but elsewhere as well. And you really recognize this feature everywhere you look, is the claim that I as 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 a populist leader speak exclusively for all of the people. I am your voice. Which means that there's always a bunch of people who are supposed to not belong. So now if you're Muslim, you're not a real American, that is part of a rhetoric that more or less explicitly is coming from the White House today. But it also means that anybody who's not a loyalist is suspect because they're not the loyal opposition. They are not um, doing the reasonable, legitimate work of um, counterbalancing the power of the executive. But rather, in the eyes of these ideologues, in the eyes of these populists, they are stopping the will of the people from being fully executed, and that is never acceptable. And so, what you've seen in countries like Hungary or Poland or Venezuela is that this political logic leads um, the populist leader toward undermining the independence of state institutions, towards trying to get his own cronies into as many positions of power as possible, into attacking. Uh, the independent judiciary, independent electoral uh, commissions, uh, and taking over the the national security state. Um, And the thing that worries me uh, about not just the appointment of Steve Bannon to the National Security Council, but, but, but in particular the removal of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and so on, is precisely that, that it's politicizing one of the aspects of the state that most needs to be independent aspect of a state that's deciding whether or not there's genuine security threats and if so, what to do about them.
2: You know, we've got just a few minutes left. Uh, We're talking to Yasha Monk. uh, His uh, upcoming book is The Age of Responsibility, Luck, Choice, and the Welfare State. He writes the Good Fight column at Slate. He's a lecturer at Harvard and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. So um, you lay out sort of three symptoms that indicate that your democracy has um, influenza, essentially. Uh, An increasing percentage of people no longer think it's important to remain democratic. They're more open to democratic, non-democratic forms of government, such as military rule, uh, and the rise of anti system of parties and movements, whose core message is that the current system is illegitimate. So, I don't know. I read that, and I think we're in intensive care unit now, right? We're not even out there in the emergency room anymore. Or, or I don't know, how close do you feel that we are to to being in, in fairly serious trouble?
3: I think we are in very serious trouble. Um, I had one fear, which is that based on my research over, over you know, years of public uh, polling, We know that citizens are less committed to democracy than they used to be, but they're more open to authoritarian alternatives to democracy. And we know that people are pretty complacent, that they think that the good things in the system are here to stay, but we don't have to worry about them. And so I was really worried that we would see a slow creeping attack on basic democratic norms and institutions, um, and that there wouldn't really be opposition against it. What I've been observing in the last two or three weeks instead is a astoundingly open and aggressive, proud attack on democratic norms, which is part of the reason why we're now in the emergency room or the ICU or whatever other part of the hospital. Um, but I've also seen a very quick and rapid awakening of a lot of people to the danger we're in and a willingness to go out and, and protest and to show that Donald Trump does not speak exclusively, him alone, for all of the American people. But There's a lot of people who have different views and who have commitment to these democratic norms and who are going to stand up to that. Um, So I think we're headed for a real clash, which which is not a good position to be in. Um, But I, 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 I I no longer fear that the American republic is going to go down without a good fight. And I think there's a real hope here that, you know, especially younger people, We've started to take liberal democracy for granted. We've started to take the good things in our system for granted because they focused on the bad things that really are there as well. Um, that they will come back with a renewed commitment to our political system.
2: Yeah, that is the hope, I think, and Yasha Munk, thank you so much for talking to us today. One thing we'll be talking about Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock, one thing I want to talk about, the governor of the state of Washington, uh, in kind of leading the the court revolt, said uh, this is what resistance looks like, and it may be increasingly important. Who, who runs individual states among the 50 states? You may see battles uh, like the battles between Republicans and Federalists of old. Um, anyway, we'll talk about that on Monday, on so Wednesday morning. Thanks to Yasha Monk again. And if you love this show, support it now. Now's the time to make a pledge. It means it, it gets a check mark in our ledger if you do that. So when the nice people ask, say yes.
1: All right, Judge Gorsuch, as this Judiciary Committee hearing comes to a close, just a few final questions for you. Very good. Abortion. Ban it. Yes, health care.
2: Repeal and replace.
1: Fantastic. Remember the good old days when all we fought about was whether that dress was black and blue or white and gold? Blue. I asked if you remember, not what the colors were, these so-called judges...